0: Timothy Clare, recording on the show, he likes to record, he likes to improvise shit songs between the... Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, hello, and each episode I'm going to be gently taking you by the hand and making you put big red marks through all the words you've written that suck. Then I'll hold on slightly too long, and it'll get weird. I'll let go, but it'll be too late. Something will have passed between us some ineffable spark and we'll spend the rest of our lives wondering what might have been, convincing our spouses to wear crudely rendered masks, etc. Motivation. What a leaky bin bag swollen with diarrhoea. You can have tons of it, but by the time you've picked it up and carried it all the way to where it's meant to go, most of it has run down your legs or Jackson Pollocked the distressed pine floorboards. Have you ever opened your laptop with the best of intentions, fully intending to do writing and then just... not? pissed the time away. Brother, sister, sibling, I have the strangest feeling you're not alone. It's hard, right? You want to write, but once you're actually there, actually facing that open document or blank page, you're immediately confronted with your own shortcomings. If you've any self-awareness at all, you'll hammer out a sentence and you'll read it back and you'll notice it's not very good. And that's an unpleasant realisation. It hurts. And to anyone listening now who doesn't write, this may sound like the most psychologically frail thing in the world. And look, I I certainly wouldn't moot it as the pinnacle of psychic robustness. But if you're writing, hopefully it's about something you care about, something you love. And so there are stakes. And if you don't get this right, the story won't live. No one else is going to write about these characters. The beautiful thing in your head will just vanish. And there are real world stakes too. If you can't write this novel, all this time you've invested will have been wasted. You might look foolish to those people who know you're trying. Your dreams of being a published author will die. You'll never escape this job you hate. You won't be able to pay the bills. This failure will haunt you for the rest of your bitter husk of an existence. And if some or all of that rises up each time you sit down to write a sentence, it's neither astonishing nor shameful that you try to protect yourself from all the stress and pain by doing something else. Because the moment you stop trying to write, the anxiety collapses and you can do something pleasant. Like wanking, I mean, I realise you can you can fail at wanking as well. That I, yeah, I mean, I definitely have in my life. Yeah, sorry. Look, I don't have a glib solution, sorry, but I I do want you to take a moment to notice what goes through your mind next time you sit down to write. The, The advice is usually to ignore your thoughts, to shut down the inner critic, but you've tried that and it ain't fucking worked, has it? So just listen to your thoughts, especially in that moment when your fingers are poised but the writing hasn't started, because it's only once you're aware of what you're thinking... It's only once you're aware of your thoughts and fears that you you can start choosing better. Stick around to the end and I'll tell you how you can submit your work to get critiqued on the show. Here's today's extract. Remember, if you want to read along, you can find this piece in the show notes on my website, timclarepoet.co.uk. This one is untitled and it's by Caleb. Some have remarked that my childhood wasn't normal and I can't deny their statements entirely. I was born with a family, of course. Everyone is. The only difference with mine is that it lasted less than a year. My mother and father left me, abandoned me, forgot about me, or perhaps even decided they'd be better off if I had never been born at all. That's what the pirates tell me. I've lived with them ever since they found me as a baby, lying in a basket by the harbour. Not an ideal beginning, to be sure, but I know this life can't be what I was destined for. There are so many other things I could be doing, like fighting in the British Army, exploring the vast, grime-covered streets of London, or simply playing with other children my age. I'd settle for that in a heartbeat. Sometimes I lay awake at night, imagining how much better my life would be if I was living it on land. The grass is always greener on the other side. That's what Barnabas told me, at least. He's my confidant, stroke friend stroke schoolmaster all rolled into one. Plus, he's one of the captain's oldest friends, which explains why he's still here, when a younger, stronger man could do his assigned duties with more vigour. Speaking of the captain, I hate him. I know it sounds callous, but you haven't been around him like I have. Right, here's my thoughts on the piece. Hello, Caleb. A short disquisition on the topic of first-person narrators. <clears throat> Theoretically, in first-person fiction all bets are off. It's a weird expression, that, isn't it? All bets are off. People usually use it to mean anything goes, or shit is about to get unbelievably real, as in, Alex is normally a pretty straight-laced guy, but when he drinks peach snaps mixed with brake fluid, all bets are off. But in actual gambling, when all bets are off, it's because they aren't taking any bets, because the race is cancelled. It's like, there's no gambling, go home. Which is just about the most boring scenario imaginable. People should be more like, tonight I just thought I'd sit at home in a pair of old jogging bottoms eat cookie dough and rub one out. So I guess all bets are off. I mean, you, you shouldn't be betting on that anyway, you weirdos. So I suppose what I mean is, in first person fiction, not all of the usual rules apply. A limited tote betting system is in place along with informal wages amongst close friends. First-person narrators are allowed to stray off the point. They can tell, not show. They might use a bunch of irritating fluff words, the sort we use in speech. And down this road lie huge potential rewards. Readers love a novel with a strong voice, especially a narrator who's a perceived outsider or has some unusual perspective on the world. Naturally, I have a favourite example, one that sits comfortably in the no-man's land between genre and literary fiction and hikes a two-fingered salute up at both camps. Here's the opening to True Grit by Charles Portis. People do not give it credence that a 14-year-old girl could leave home and go off in the wintertime to avenge her father's blood. But it did not seem so strange then, although I will say it did not happen every day. I was just 14 years of age when a coward going by the name of Tom Chaney shot my father down in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and robbed him of his life and his horse and $150 in cash money plus two California gold pieces that he carried in his trouser band. Here is what happened. Oh fuck. That is so much better than anything I have ever written. Especially that final line. I mean, so much of it is good, but that final line, here is what happened, right? You're just like I mean, I will follow you to the ends of the earth now. It's so good. Everything in the story that you need to know is in that opening paragraph. It's so specific, it's beautiful. And the fact that I have never written anything as good as that. does not mean that I'm not going to try in my life, but it's nice to have something to work towards. What I particularly love about True Grit is that although the protagonist is 14-year-old girl Matty Ross, the first-person narrator isn't. It's Mattie as an old lady, and she wanders off into these oddly fuddy-duddy biblical exegesis while being totally unimpressed with her own acts of heroism, and it creates this beautiful dissonance and a compelling lens on the story. That said, while some of the rules are apparently relaxed, first-person narration is kind of a trick because some of the stylistic furniture gets rearranged, but the underlying structure is still the same as it ever was, unless, of course, the story is shit. So, here's your first sentence. Some have remarked that my childhood wasn't normal, and I can't deny their statements entirely. Now, look, I, I want to point out, going back to uh, True Grit, you know, actually, uh, you know, there's something quite similar to it that, that Matty Ross says. She says... Uh, uh, it did not seem so strange then, although I will say it did not happen every day, right? So so superficially, these two openings are quite similar. And I've just said the one I read out is one of my favourite openings to any book ever. So this must be amazing, right? So I'm going to explain to you, Caleb, why I don't think it's amazing. You are amazing as a human being. You're inherently full of wonder and value. But uh, So I'm only dealing with the writing here which I don't think is amazing. So here's the line again. Some have remarked that my childhood wasn't normal, and I can't deny their statements entirely. This is a weirdly non-committal, wishy-washy sentence. Some have remarked. That's the kind of phrase you hear on Fox News when they're trying to disguise editorialising by attributing opinions to multiple unnamed sources. And they've got a good reason to do it, right? Because they're trying to hide ideological partiality under the agus of merely reporting what other Imaginary people have said, but why is your narrator being so coy right off the bat? I can't deny their statements entirely, again. Weirdly legalistic. And, and I get that, yes, sometimes people speak like this because they're being evasive or they're using ironic understatement. English people do it all the time. If someone says they just experienced not the greatest night of my life, then you could be fairly sure they were up till 4am stemming a knee-deep diarrhoea flood in their basement. But your narrator isn't doing this. They don't seem to be hiding anything. In fact, they're weirdly blunt, not telling us a story so much as presenting us with a list of facts. I was born with a family, of course everyone is. As soon as your narrator uses a phrase like, of course, this is a clue. They are reaching out of their fictional world and they're sending a message across the divide. And that message is, you just made me say something obvious and shit. Not that you can't use adverbial clauses to great effect, of course. The classic example is the opening of Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Marley was dead, to begin with. That is stone-cold sexatron, right? I mean... Like all Dickens, it's a bit knowing, which some people find annoying, but I don't know. You can't go through life worrying about annoying people. That's always been my... What I'm saying is, why mention this, I have two key rules when it comes to description. One, be crunchily specific, so avoid big, vague, abstract nouns like family. Two pick your battles. Don't describe stuff that the reader would probably assume. The only difference with mine is that it lasted less than a year. This is very fucking dry language indeed to talk about being abandoned. How many concrete nouns are in that sentence, Caleb, my noble friend? Things you can see, taste, touch. Let's read it again. The only difference with mine is that it lasted less than a year. Precisely zero. It's just an insipid, conceptual fart of a line. Difference, mine, it, year. It's just this mire of relativism with nothing for the reader to bite down on. This is the whole impetus behind the rule: show, don't tell. Show, don't tell isn't some humiliating set of training wheels you get to discard when you reach artistic maturity. It's the fucking bike. My mother and father left me, abandoned me, Forgot about me, or perhaps even decided they'd be better off if I'd never been born at all. So what won't be obvious on the audio is that there's a uh, semicolon between about me and or perhaps. You don't need that. So that's just more flavourless, abstract nats piss. Nothing specific. Nothing arresting. And the narrator doesn't even know their own story. They're just like, I don't know. I'm just the narrator. You might as well ask the reader to fill this bit in. There's not a scrap of detail here. No names, no places, nothing to engage our five sentences. This sentence is a resounding failure. Again, look. I'm gonna. I'm. I don't. I'm not doing this to to browbeat you but let's go back to the opening of True Grit people do not give it credence that a 14 year old girl so immediately gives her age could leave home and go off in the winter time so we've got the time of year to avenge her father's blood but it did not seem so strange then although I will say it did not happen every day I was just 14 years of age when a coward going by the name of Tom Chaney so we've got actual names of characters shot my father down in Fort Smith, Arkansas actual specific historical places and robbed him of his life and his horse and $150 in cash money so we've got a specific value plus two california gold pieces that he carried in his trouser band how fucking specific is that it's unbelievably good and in yours you're just telling us random just general shit that's what the pirates tell me i've lived with them ever since they found me as a baby lying in a basket in a harbor like what is that that you've just got words like the british army the vast grime covered streets of london which to me that's just a cliche that you have come up with off the top of your head that is not it doesn't feel like the narrator has actually ever been to london maybe they haven't that's what the pirates tell me thank fuck (laughs) immediately this sentence lifts the whole story oh by the way, did I mention the pirates? Why do you hold this back until the second paragraph? If this is a pirate novel, the first two fucking words out of your narrator's mouth ought to be the pirates. Because then there's literally no point in the novel after the first word where the reader doesn't know it contains pirates. That is immediately going to make it 100% better. Imagine your opening line, thus recast. The pirates say my real parents never loved me that compresses everything we've just read into nine words instead of 70. Notice I haven't changed any of your content, just your delivery. Primacy recency effect, remember? The words at the start and end of your sentences matter. You open with the pirates, you closed with loved me. It's powerful, it gives us a main character, a setting and an emotional conflict. And this isn't me changing any of what the story's about, I'm just thinking what is an arresting, engaging first line that makes someone go fuck I have to read this whole story. I've lived with them ever since they found me as a baby, lying in a basket by the harbour. Not an ideal beginning to be sure, but I know this life can't be what I was destined for. Okay, so one, that infant in a basket beat is the hackiest cliche known to humanity. Come on, Caleb, push yourself. Discard your first and second choices. What's an interesting place or circumstance for a baby to be found? Inside a roast turkey, clasped in the arms of a fatally wounded Jesuit, on the steps of a theatre, stuffed into a massive top hat, clinging to the whipstaff of an ancient burned out galleon. Do you know what a whipstaff is? Probably not, because by the sounds of the later parts, you haven't done any research. Uh, it's a Precursor to the ship's wheel, the first of which didn't appear until the amazingly late 1704, and it was a big stick you used to move the ship's rudder, like you have on little outboard motors. And I, I don't bring up this research to prove that I can reach up onto my shelf and take down the book that's called Tudor Sea Power, and and I don't bring it up just to be a shithead, although I may be being a shithead for unrelated reasons but I mention it to suggest a potential reason for and solution to your specificity problem you're having to talk in these vague cliches like I mean come on come on Caleb I know that you know better than this when you have lines like that's what Barnabas told me at least he's my confidant stroke friend stroke schoolmaster all rolled into one you know that's naff, right? You must realise that you're just dumping a wholesale cliche. You understand the theory of show, don't tell, right? So you can't get away with lines like that. But I think you're having to talk in these vague cliches because you don't really know the time and place you're talking about. You haven't left the library staggering under the heap of books you're going to pour over until you find all the lovely specific words and bits of technology and locations and historical tidbits that fill you with ideas and bring fiction alive. If you can learn to love research, then so many of these problems solve themselves. You'll learn a bunch of cool shit about the different names for sizes of cannon and how to load one and how far it can fire. You'll learn names for parts of the ship and what food they took with them and the names for different jobs on the ship and the names of famous pirates and the social context and the locations and just so much cool cool stuff. And you'll think, oh my God, how will I fit this much awesome into my novel? And then you'll start stuffing and stuffing and stuffing. And every time you read another book, you'll find this new cool detail or fact you never knew before. And that will give you an idea for an amazing fight scene or a funny one line or some gorgeous backdrop for your beautiful emotive reconciliation. Caleb, I am telling you, I am promising you, my friend, put in the effort Take this seriously, do the research, and you will make the most succulent turducken or vegan risotto or whatever sumptuous food fits your dietary requirements you can imagine. You cannot wing this with a grab bag full of clichés and a cheeky wink. Unless you're J.K. Rowling. (laughs) Tim Clare, speaking truth to power. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to submit something to be critiqued on the show, please go to my website, timclairpoet.co.uk. There's a link to the submission guidelines in the show notes for today's episode. Also, if you have any questions about what I've talked about, anything specific you want discussed, or any constructive feedback on ways I can make this better, you can drop me a line via the contact me link on the right hand column of my website. That's timclairepoet.co.uk. Really looking forward to getting some writers, agents and editors on the show and chatting about making fiction less bad. If you fall into one of those categories or you know someone who does by all means get in touch what i'd like from you right now is for you to share this podcast with people you think might find it useful or or funny or enraging whether that's on facebook twitter or on the forums of your writing group wherever i also need first pages to feed the ravenous tire fire of our submission pile so please send those only you can help i'm learning this as i go along but hopefully i'll manage to stick this up on itunes and find ways of distributing the podcast so people can actually find it that's it Until next time, just do a bit, it's okay, you're doing okay.